Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm your host, Bill Arnold. Really excited about the show today, as I always am, because uh, David Wheaton's going to be joining me in just a minute. We're going to continue our uh, talk on the book of Genesis and how relevant it is for today. We've been in this for months and months and months, and I'm loving it. And I'm not sure what chapter we're on. I think we're up to about chapter 27, maybe. We'll find out with David in just a minute. Heather Holloman's going to be joining us as well. And then we're going to continue our Salvation series with um, Dr. Eric Tonus. So looking forward to that. It's going to be great. Dr. Peter Kapschner will be joining me as well for that. But for now, let's get back into the book of Genesis. I'd like more. David Wheaton is my guest. Of course, go to the Christian Worldview uh, to learn more about David. David, welcome. Good afternoon, Bill. Whereabouts are you? What part of the world are you in today? Oh, I'm, I'm right here in the Twin Cities with you. Okay, awesome. Awesome. Let's jump back into Genesis. I think we're about 27 now, aren't we? We are, yeah. So, um, just Maybe. to catch folks, yeah, just to catch folks up on last time, we were in Genesis twenty-five and twenty-six, and just just an amazing book. You know, you think it's written, you know, what uh, so many thousands of years ago, but uh, how relevant uh, the institutions that God established from the very beginning. I mean, even in the first couple of verses, we learn that God exists and that He speaks. He's revealed Himself to us. That changes everything. And then all of a sudden, all these different accounts and the fall of man and the Tower of Babel and the flood and all these Abraham. And now we're getting into Isaac, all the patriarchs of the faith. And there is so much to be gleaned from uh, this part of the part of the Bible. Indeed. Let's talk about uh, some other key points from last time, because I think I could use a little brush up on the relationship that Isaac and Rebecca had, uh, how they were similar to Abraham and Sarah. Right. So there's three main uh, patriarchs of, of, of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we went through Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and they, they you know, were only able to have a one son between them. And th- this son was the son of promise that had to wait so long. We've covered that in the last couple of weeks. But then this son, Isaac, that they had, had a very similar experience to his parents. You know, sometimes things repeat themselves in families. And so Isaac was 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 found a wife named Rebecca, and uh, they were struggling just like his parents, uh, Abraham and Sarah, to have a child. And we find in Genesis 25 what we did last time that that Rebecca is barren, like like her mother-in-law Sarah, but then finally conceives. But this time there's a little difference. She conceived twins, and the twins are named Esau and Jacob, and they had a brotherly conflict just like. Abraham and Sarah's two two boys, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. And so these things are repeating themselves in the next generation down. And not only that, but there's also a real uh, situation of fa- uh, parental favoritism in the story, which is very, it's about to explode. Actually, what we're going to talk about today, it says in Genesis 25, 27, when the boys grew up, Esau, the older, became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob, the younger, was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, here's where the favoritism come in. Verse 28. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game. 
but Rebecca, his wife, loved Jacob. And that's such a key passage because what we're going to find out today as we talk about this this traded birthright, birthright and the stolen blessing that Jacob takes from Esau, the fact that Esau was Isaac's favorite and that Jacob was Rebekah's favorite comes into play. So this is all the ingredients, Bill, are here for this, this great conflict. And then lastly, the second thing from last time I'll just briefly mention is that, you know, when the boys were younger, uh, Esau had gone out hunting. He had come back. He was starving. And he saw Jacob making some lentil stew in, in the kitchen of where they lived. And he said, give me some of that. And, and Jacob took the, the opportunity uh, to barter literally a bowl of soup uh, for Esau's rightful birthright. And the birthright was a really important thing in that particular time. If you were born first, that was an important honor and privilege afforded to the firstborn, especially so in this particular story, because the line of Christ comes through Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. In other words, Esau was giving something away of really big significance and spiritual value for something very temporal, just food. Mm -hmm. You think how relevant that is today, how often we settle for temporal things in life, for chasing after temporal things, get distracted by you know, career and money and relationships or whatever else in life we, we make as idols in our life when we should be having as first and top priority God. And that's what Esau didn't do. So he was portrayed in Hebrews 12 as really an ungodly man because he was godless, it says, because he sold his birthright for a single meal. Mm-hmm. I don't want to overthink this, David, but I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of Esau coming home, I mean, imagine you being on the tennis courts for six hours one day and you come home to the family home, and what would suggest you're not entitled to the family food that's in the family home? Exactly. And so it seemed like a pretty insignificant uh, situation. I mean, maybe they were teenagers at the time, it doesn't say their age, uh, but it seems reasonable to think, well, why is it such a big deal? But but apparently, you know, the birthright is so significant in that Esau was willing to barter it away. I don't care about my birthright. I'm just hungry. Give me some of that <laughs> soup. <laughs> right. But Jacob was a spiritual man. He knew how important the birthright was. Now, that didn't cinch the deal, so to speak, uh, Bill, uh, because later on, when it came time, when, as we're going to talk about, when Esau got older and he thought he was going to die, now it came time for Esau or for Isaac to lay out the blessing of the birthright. And Esau is going to try to give it, uh, or Isaac's going to try to give it to Esau, but uh, Rebecca and Jacob are going to conspire to actually take that blessing away. Okay. Is that the good recap? Should we move forward? Yes. We're good to go. Okay. Um, where should we pick up? Should we go to um, why Isaac was going to bestow blessing on Esau when he knew the younger son was to receive the blessing? Yeah. In other words, the, the question here, so the context of this is, you know, Isaac, now you fast forward a lot of years mm-hmm. from the time the, the, the birthright was bartered. Isaac is now 137 years old. They lived, of course, longer back then. Uh, he thought he, it says that he was losing his eyesight. Uh, he thought he was going to die. Uh, and so this was the time for a father to bestow the blessing on his firstborn son, Esau. And right. also there'd be a blessing for, for Jacob, but not going to be the same as for Esau. Right. Now, interestingly, Bill, Isaac wouldn't die for 43 more years after this time. Hmm. So he really wasn't going to die. He just thought he was going to die. And so that's why he had decided to call his 
oldest son, Esau, to himself to, to give him the blessing that he thought he deserved. But, but the, the reason that the, the question is, why did Isaac try to bestow the blessing on Esau when he knew the younger son, Jacob, was to receive it? Mm-hmm. Because remember, just back a couple of chapters ago when we talked about this, God had already told Isaac's wife, Rebekah, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body. And the one, one people should be stronger than the other. And here's the key line. And the older shall serve the younger. In other words, they had already been told that it was Jacob who was going to be the one that was to be the line of Christ, not Esau. And, and, and surely, secondly, Esau, I mean, Isaac surely knew, probably, I'm guessing, what had happened between the brothers when they were younger. He sold his birthright and all that. I'm sure he had heard about that. And, and then thirdly, Esau had grown up to marry women uh, of the local Hittites who were godless people. And so that was a great grievousness to his parents. So re- really, Isaac was being disobedient when he should have known better than to be granting his, his blessing to his firstborn Esau when he knew full well that that blessing should have gone to the younger, even though that was, that was against convention. He knew that. So he was, being, he was being disobedient because, again, back to what we talked about today, Esau was his favorite. That's so, uh, okay, let's go now to the whole idea, and this is a big question, David, I don't know how we even begin to answer this one, but can we alter or change uh, the will of God through the personal choices we make? Right, so it's a huge huge question. question. Yes. I'll I'll try to answer it (laughs) fairly simply. So God had already established that the line of Christ was going to come through Jacob. (laughs) No matter what Isaac wanted to do, it wasn't going to come through Esau. Okay. But now all these decisions are being made contrary to God's will. Esau or Isaac's trying to bestow the blessing on Esau and all these things are going on, the stolen birthright, all these different dynamics are taking place. So the short answer is, can we alter the will of God through our personal choices? On a big picture, absolutely not. What God decrees in his declarative will will come to pass. Now, We also have some personal decision-making on our own end that doesn't declare where things are going to go, but it may change how we actually get to God's will. In other words, the rest of the story we're going to see here is Isaac tries to to bless Esau. Uh, His wife, Rebecca, steps in with this incredibly deceptive plot with her son, Jacob. And all these these incredible stories we're going to find out in the next segment happens. But it doesn't change anything, but it does change some of the circumstances on the way to God's will being accomplished. All right. That's a great, uh, great way to answer that question, because it is a big one. And I love uh, I love how you answered that. Um, let me take a little break. Uh, David Wheaton is my guest. We're continuing the book of Genesis, looking at that and how it is the most relevant for today. Uh, if you have a question or you've got uh, something you need clarified that you hear, let me know what it is. Send a text to 877 332484. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. David Wheaton is my guest. You can always head over to the Christian worldview.org to learn more about David. He's got an outstanding uh, radio show and podcast and books, and he's a brilliant thinker and a great 
follower of Jesus, a man of God, a guy I look up to, and I'm always happy when I get a chance to talk to him every couple of weeks. Today we're talking our continuing our discussion on the book of Genesis and how it is relevant for today. David, let's talk about the deception of Isaac and um, how that played out, that Jacob would receive the blessing. It was yeah, really I mean, unnecessary, it, too. It, it was unnecessary. I mean, if, if listeners today are following the story here, you just really have to read Genesis chapter 27 for you, for yourself, because just the story, the twi- I mean, you couldn't make this up. Um, you know, no, no Hollywood you know, screenwriter would ever think of such a, of a plot that's going to take place. And by the way, the Bible is so amazing how, how much it includes in such a short amount of space. I know the Bible is a long book. There's a lot of books in it. But like the story here, I mean, it's, it's captured incredibly well in just one chapter, uh, chapter 27. And so th- this deception begins in, in chapter 27, verse 5, where Rebecca, Isaac's wife, overhears Isaac talking to Esau uh, about, I'm getting old. Uh, please go out hunting, bring me my favorite meal, which is venison, and then go out and hunt and come back and serve it to me, and I'm going to give you your blessing. And so Rebecca overhears this, and, and immediately she just goes into like fifth gear. Like, no, we cannot let this happen. We cannot let Isaac bestow the blessing on Esau instead of you, Jacob. And so the big deception begins. How can we, uh, it looks like this is going to happen, even though, again, Rebecca should have known it's God's will. Somehow God would have worked it out. We don't know how because, again, we start to input our own human flawed decision-making here. It's going to mess things up, but we're still going to get to the same point like we talked about earlier. We're still going to get to God's will of, of Jacob receiving the blessing, but now it's going to be a circuitous path to get there. I think it's just worth reading a couple of those those verses just to get a capture, a sense of the story, Bill. It says, uh, here's, here's Rebecca talking to Jacob after she's overheard what her husband just said to Esau. Now, therefore, like urgency here, my son, listen to me as I command you, go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father that he may eat so that he may bless you, talking to Jacob, before his death. And Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, saying, behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, then I will be as a deceiver in his sight, and I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. Mm. But his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them, get the goats for me to prepare. I mean, this is an unbelievable scheme, if you think about it. I mean, how on earth is this going to work that Esau goes as hunting, Rebecca and Jacob are back. They're going to slaughter a couple of goats. They're going to take the skins of the goats, put it on Jacob's skin. So he appears hairy like his older brother. And then he's going to go into his father who is blind and thinks he's near death. And Jacob's going to receive the blessing instead of Esau. I mean, I mean, Jacob, Jacob's protesting himself. He's objecting like, this is not going to work, Mom. <laughs> I mean, even though the father is nearly blind and feeling close to death, this plan is incredibly deceptive because think about it, Bill. At some point, Isaac's going to find out pretty soon when, when, when Esau gets back from hunting, which is not going to be super long. It takes a while to go and hunt deer. But at some point, he's going to come back and he's going to find out. So what is this going to do to the family 
when Isaac and Esau find out that Rebecca and Jacob have just tried to deceive Isaac for the blessing. And so, I mean, it's just an incredible scheme, but you can also see how important this birthright and blessing was to that particular time for Rebecca to say, literally, let the curse be upon you if it doesn't work. I mean, maybe she was hearkening back to the time when God told her the younger, uh, the, the older shall serve the younger. I'm not sure, but she was going to go after this no matter the consequences. Wow. It, it is. It's a story that you you think there's no Hollywood writer that's going to come up with this and sell it. Very much not. No, and no. Um, she did. Again, it would be it'd be very interesting what how God would have worked this out for his decla- declared will yeah. for Jacob to get the blessing had they not done this deceptive plot. OK, David, let's talk about what happens when when your sin finds you out. <laughs> yeah. Never pretty. <laughs> Well, lo and behold, Esau comes back from hunting, and uh, things have changed from the time when he uh, he went out. And I, I, someone told me one time that this line, and I'm probably not perfectly quoting this, he said, Satan always shows us the beautiful beginning of the way and not the painful and bitter end of the way. Oh, I love In that. In other words, when we're tempted to do wrong, mm-hmm. um, we always see like, oh, this is going to work. This is, <laughs> this is a good idea. Let's Let's go down this route. But then in the end, after everything's kind of played itself out, we realize that, no, that, that was not a good idea. Now, now there's bitterness and conflict and everything else as a result of sinful choices. And that's what happens here. Uh, because when he comes back from hunting, he's discovered that uh, his brother has stolen, not now just his birthright, but also stolen the blessing. And, and the, the sin finding out here, Bill, is, is almost painful to watch. As, as I was reading this today, I was like just cringing at the <laughs> fact that you have Jacob coming in, imitating himself as Esau with the goat's hair on his arms, mm. bringing in the food, and he's lying directly to his father. Let me just read one verse. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I mean, lie. I have done as you told me. Get up, please. Eat of my game that you may bless me. And Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have come so quickly, my son? And then Jacob says, because the Lord your God caused it to me to happen to me. And then Isaac is, is smelling a rat here. He says, please come close that I might feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob said, I am. Uh-huh. I mean, it's just cringing painful. as you're reading this. It is. It's like, man, you're lying directly to your poor father who can't see and mm. thinks he's going to die. And I mean, isn't there a better way than this? And it's just painful to read. And he's even crediting God with how quickly the hunt went. But but Isaac is still sen- sensing something wrong. But eventually his 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 anxiety, his concerns get allayed and he bestows the blessing on Jacob. And then Esau, of course, comes in and finds out. And Isaac begins just to literally tremble violently because he realizes what has taken place here, that he's been tricked. But he's also realizing that he himself was doing the wrong thing by trying to bless Esau instead of instead of Jacob. So you can imagine his realization as well, Bill. He's thinking, whoa, God was right all along. Look at this. I I was supposed to be blessing Jacob. And no matter how hard I tried to bless Esau, I ended up blessing Jacob. I think he was just, to use a popular or a current colloquialism, he was just blown away yeah. by how this turned out 
in the midst of all this deception. Wow. So let's let's look at Esau's re- response. So how how does does his response teach us if we're going to be able to avoid bitterness? Well, let me just say as a disclaimer there here, I, I think it'll be a- after this sort of trickery and deception, yeah. it would be difficult for any any person who's got a, a heartbeat right. to not be, you know, revengeful, angry, have hold a grudge and be bitter. I mean, and literally remember Isaac or Esau didn't think of as much of his birthright earlier in life. But now clearly, as he's gotten older, he realized maybe not even spiritually what it was, but certainly materially what he had lost. Uh, you know, from the inheritance of being the firstborn. And he was literally weeping, it says in Genesis 27, 38. He lifted up his voice and wept. He said, don't you have any more a blessing for me? I mean, again, this painful picture, like the oldest son has just realized that the words that the blessing that he gave to Jacob, he's not going to get even a, a, a hardly a portion of that. And it says, it concludes this section by saying, Esau bore a grudge against Jacob. I mean, that's putting it mildly because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. In other words, he's going to die and we're going to mourn for him as dead. But then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the the, the lesson here is when we allow bitterness, even over justifiable bitterness, by the way, Mm -hmm. when we when we allow bitterness to sort of root itself in our hearts, it eventually develops deeper and deeper roots. It turns into hatred, and then it turns eventually, if it's allowed to keep going, it turns into murder. And, and we, we can certainly understand the hurt here that, that Esau had, but the grudges and the bitterness that Esau had were going to really lead to his own destruction, not Jacob's. In other words, bitterness hurts us. We often think we hold a grudge, we're hurting someone else, but really the reality is bitterness really hurts us the most. And we really have no right to be bitter and hold grudges because when someone sins against us, we should just think right to Jesus Christ himself. He did no sin. No deceit was found in himself. He was crucified unjustly and he held no bitterness or grudge against those who killed him. He's forgiven us all our offenses against him. He wasn't bitter against us. So we have no right to be bitter against anyone else. Mm -hmm. Are we aware of bitterness or is it a little bit of a blind spot? Well, I think it can be a blind spot, but I think bitterness and holding grudges can make us feel good in a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're, we're going to teach them that they should have never done that to us. Right. Uh, instead, we need to be like Stephen when he was being stoned, stoned, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And that's very hard to do. It's easy to say he's sitting here talking to you today mm-hmm. uh, because there are real hurts and real offenses and real sinful things that happen to us in life. But that is the call. And Christ, through his spirit, can empower us, give us the ability to overcome the natural bitterness that we find in ourselves when we've been offended. Yeah, David, thanks for bringing us this uh, study of Genesis. I'm loving it, as are the listeners. So thank you. Thank you, Bill. Yep, David Wheaton has been my guest. Head over to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David and catch his podcast. Take a little break. We'll be back with Dr. Heather Hollerman. Joining me in just a minute, she's written a new book called Scent, 
living a life that invites others to Jesus. Heather, she's a director of crew at Penn State, has written a number of books, Chosen for Christ, Guarded by Christ, Seated with Christ, and this is her latest book called Sent, Living a Life that Invites Others to Jesus. Heather, welcome back. Hi, Bill. It's so good to be on your show again. Thank you so much. Now, did you uh, write this with uh, Ashley? I did. I wrote this with my husband. We survived. It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, uh-huh. writing with your spouse. Yeah. He was great. He took, he, you know, I, I set up assignments for him at the coffee shop. He finished all of his deadlines. It was perfect. Good for it was him. perfect. Good for him. So let's start with just finding out what it means to live a, a scent life. What does that mean? Well, living a scent life means that you embrace your biblical identity that Jesus is sending you. It's part of who you are. And for so long, I thought evangelism, you know, telling people about Jesus, I thought it was like guilt or duty or so much about me needing more training. And then this year I thought, no, Jesus sends us. It's the number one way Jesus describes the Father in the book of John. So by the time you get to John 20, where Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So Mm. it's about knowing you're sent wherever you are. Interesting. So we don't have to sit and tell God that we have to be more ready before you send me. We just have to be obedient. Yes, and it's just part of who you are. And and it's as natural as, you know, eating breakfast or brushing your teeth. It's just a core part of your identity in Christ. And the one thing I realized, because I love organizing Scripture to help me figure out how to live my life, as I look through the Bible, I was like, okay— God is always at work to draw people to himself. He's using people to lead others to Jesus, and he's continually inviting all believers into this work. And it just got me so excited. You think of the Great Commission, but there's also that beautiful part where you hear Jesus say, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. I just get so excited about that. I do, too. So if you're being sent out by Jesus, you don't have to fear so much about rejection or or worry that people are going to be offended. You just you just follow what God has called you to do. Yes, and it's about living such a life of adventure and joy with Jesus because you know this is what he's doing. So he sends you out and the position of your heart is, Lord, send me to be an agent of blessing and proclamation just that you see the people in your life who don't know Jesus as placed there by God and you're supernaturally in their life. And so every interaction is this opportunity to experience how God could use you. And I I loved exploring just the metaphors in the New Testament for how to see yourself. You know, I'm big into professional development. I want to know my job description. And I love how Jesus, as you read the New Testament, you really, in any situation, could see yourself as a farmer, a fisherman, an ambassador, or a royal priest. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time thinking about my job description as I'm sent into the lives of people. So Heather, I know listeners are... are hearing this, thinking, convince them that, and to, so they can believe that God has sent them. Well, first of all, we know that God's at work. So he is drawing people to himself. That's yes. what people need to first realize. That's the core principle of my life, that we know that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's Luke 19. We know that that's what Jesus is still doing, which of course raises the question, you know, we could immediately be sanctified and go into heaven into eternity. Why does God still leave us here? It's clear he's building a kingdom. We know God's using people. He could have used any other method, but we know God's using people. So think about Acts 1-8. I remember exactly where I was in the Student Union of University of Michigan when I read Acts 1-8, and it says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, 
and you will be my witnesses. So, you know, I'm circling these things in the Bible and that we know that if you're a believer, we know in Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians that God is using you to spread the knowledge of him wherever you go. And then in Second Corinthians 5, you get that beautiful and very mysterious passage that God is using you as his ambassador, and he's making an appeal through you to other people. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways to think about the fruit you're going to bear. Ephesians 2, John 15, you know, he's appointed you for good fruit. So once you establish that, you cannot deny Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go, go and make disciples. Now, theologically speaking, I really had to to question, okay, God, do you speak out the exact places where I live? Yes, Acts 17. Are you holding my life in your hands, you know, all of my ways? Is it possible that God has orchestrated you and your neighborhood, your workplace, you know, even if you go to the doctor or your dishwasher breaks down, to live a sent identity that the sovereign God of the universe is positioning people on a rescue mission? I mean, Bill, this has become so deep in my heart wow. that if I break a foot and I'm at the doctor, my first question is, okay, Lord, who here doesn't know you? The doctor might not know you. Or if my dishwasher breaks, it's not about the dishwasher. It's about the repairman. Does yeah. he know you? So life has become really exciting around here. And that makes me jump right to Chapter 8, Heather, where you talk about the easiest questions to ask. And this is a great lesson you can give uh, not only me, but all of our all of the listeners right now. And there's one particular yes. word which I can't wait for you to say. You mean about curiosity? Yep, being that's curious it. About people? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well... Curiosity, if you're listening, it's actually one of the most important key professional skills to develop. Being curious is also good for well-being. I quote a lot of research. You know, I love, I love, you know, I'm a scholar. I love looking at what all the research says. So developing curiosity as you, as you meet people, my first question to ask, even before you get into a spiritual conversation, is you can just say to, to people that you meet, I'm really excited to get to know you. And here's my favorite question, Bill look at them and say, what question do you like people to ask you about yourself? Wow. Do you not love that? It's so easy. You can start great friendships and it's great for your dating relationships for young people who want to know what to talk about when they go out. Just ask the person, what question do you like people to ask you? But over the years, I have four questions. They're called the four best questions that always lead to a great spiritual conversation. So the first one is this. So I, I'm walking a bunch of kids to school with their parents, and I, I was walking, and I'm with a woman who converted to Hinduism, and all I said was this. I turned to her, and I said, well, you know I'm a Christian. What does your tradition say about Jesus? And she said that single question sent her back to her house. What does my tradition say about Jesus? Who is he? That single question opened up a gospel presentation. She not only prayed to receive Christ, but she led wow. her husband and two children to the Lord. And that's not a hard question. Just say, what does your tradition say about Jesus? Now, of course, she said, well, tell me more, you know, how do, what, is, what do Christians believe about Jesus? And that led us to study the book of John together. And the book, we give you a lot of tips and skills that maybe you don't have. You know, how do I share the gospel with someone? But the second question is if someone's talking to you and maybe they're in distress or they're, you know, with the COVID-19 world, you're going to deal with a lot of loneliness, anxiety, uncertainty. If you turn to someone and say, the things you're talking about sound like spiritual problems to me. Do you consider yourself on a spiritual journey? And where are you on that journey? 
people will burst into tears. Mm. They might say, I can't believe you asked me that. I asked a student that who was crying one day. I said, it seems like you're, you're having a spiritual moment here. And she said to me, you know, I grew up, my mom and dad gave me a Bible and talked to me about Jesus. And when I got to college, I abandoned my faith and I need to come back just by asking her about that journey question. Now, the third question is so easy. Anyone can ask it. And it's one of my favorites. I just tell people, look, I'm in a fresh season of prayer. Do you have any prayer requests I might commit to pray for? Nobody has said no. Mm-hmm. People now want to be in my prayer journal. I have people that say, they call me Dr. H at Penn State. So they'll be like, Dr. H, you know, I'm an atheist, but put me in that prayer journal. <laughs> and they'll come and they'll ask about my prayer life. And it opens up conversation. And then the last question, um, which is harder. So if you're listening and you're like, oh, I don't know if I could do this. My best question for evangelism that opens up so many doors is I'll walk into spaces where there are not believers. And just in the course of conversation, I will say, I just learned something really great in the Bible that's changing how I deal with and then whatever it is God has been teaching you. I've had people who know nothing about the Bible. Like I was, I literally walked into my office at Penn State. You know, I have an atheist office mate and then someone from a completely different, you know, different religious tradition who I walked in and I said, I'm really struggling with a lot of fear like a spirit of dread with public speaking. And I was reading in the Bible, you know, just talking about what God's teaching me. I said, I was reading in the Bible about how God hasn't given me a spirit of fear. Mm -hmm. Well, the atheist turned to me and she just said, can you say that again? And I said, yeah, I, I, the Bible talks about not having a spirit of fear. And she said, what you just said, that spirit of fear, I have that. I know I have that. How do I get rid of that? It just opened up the whole door. So we also we encourage people to know, you know, how is God working? What are your top three stories of transformation? And attach it to a Bible verse because God's word is so powerful. It, it it bears fruit. And so I know. Are you inspired, Bill? Do you feel like you have all the tools you need? Well, I'm totally inspired, and it's it's so simple. Everything you're sharing, Heather, is so simple. It is just yes. you're weaving it into everyday conversation. You're yes. speaking truth, and you're being curious, yes. and being curious is never, ever a bad thing. No, it's wonderful. Actually, it's good for you. People who are curious are less trustful, less angry, and less aggressive, according to the research on curiosity coming out of George Mason. And curiosity saves marriages, apparently, I'm reading. Just to position yourself, and if if you're wondering, you know, how do I really think about that biblically, you know, a lot of Philippians 2, if you think about taking the lowest place and be putting the interests of other people above yourself. How do you know what they are? How do you put the interests of someone above yourself if you're not even interested in their life at all? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a way of honoring people above yourself. So living a curious life will change everything. You just start asking people and people are so lonely right now and so scared and, you know, distant from everyone that I've been, you know, doing kind of like a texting strategy Well, I'll text my professor friends and I'll say, I'm just really curious. How, how has it been for you? What, what's going on? And that usually that leads to the prayer requests and usually that leads to them needing to talk and yeah. just being curious. Yes. Okay, Heather, I got a bunch more questions for you, but I do need to take a little break. Dr. Heather Holloman is my guest. Her book is called Scent, Living a Life That Invites Others to Jesus. She co-wrote it with her hubby, Ashley. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Dr. Heather Holloman is my guest. Heather, I haven't spoken to you in a while. I forgot how good you are. This is really good, good <laughs> stuff. Really. I'm not, I'm not making any of this up. Well, I didn't forget how good you are. You're so great and have so much fun energy on the radio. It's always fun to listen to you. So I saw that I had you today, and I was like, yes, Bill Arnold, I got this. It was exciting. <laughs> All right, talk about the easiest story to tell. All right, the easiest story to tell is, and it's the most important tool you have, it's the most important tool you can leverage in spiritual conversations, and that is your story of God at work in your life. And we encourage you to think of your top three stories of transformation because it moves like the the vague spiritual conversations you might have into these really practical, powerful moments with neighbors and coworkers when you say, look, this was who I was. And then I met Jesus. It's the way you first tell your story of meeting Jesus. And then what Bible verse did God use? What was it? How did, what came alive for you? And then I talk about telling stories of rescue, where God rescued you. There's also stories of provision and stories of maturity. And I give examples of how you can tell them in two to three minutes in great conversation. So you set up your before scene, what your struggle was, how God met you, and the word, because I think God's word, you know, we learn in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Mm -hmm. The stories themselves are not what's powerful. It's that you're leading them to God's word and the Holy Spirit we pray makes it come alive to people. So it's great to use in groups. We've done it with Sunday school classes. We've done it with just small groups of people. Write down your stories of transformation. Go use them. Go use them in conversation. And it just becomes really easy. Um, I tell pretty regularly my story of God healing me from jealousy, and that's what the book Seated with Christ from Ephesians 2. But I know how to tell that story in two to three minutes. And so we really just challenge people. You know, it's really easy to do this. And remember, my husband, he co-wrote the book with me because he's an introvert who claims he does not have any gift of evangelism. And yet, by faith, he steps out of the house, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, he just led our 85-year-old neighbor to Christ. Mm. So using stories, engaging him in good conversations, taking that step of faith to invite him out to coffee and begin asking curious questions. Oh, wow. That, it's just so strong to be reminded that it's got at work in your life. And you can tell your stories and be curious, and you can get someone's attention quickly, can't you? Yes. And then again, it just makes things really exciting. Your life will start to explode with that kind of worship and intimacy. A lot of Christians feel like bored or they have a lack of purpose or else they're living in real despair because of the times. They don't really know what they're supposed to be doing. You know, what what can they do? But this scent identity really gives them a way to think, okay, Jesus, I'm going to do this with you every day. This is who I am. This is who you made me to be. Let's go do this together. And you're going to start to have some really fun adventures. And that's what we have found. Okay. Heather, if we're going to invite people to a response, I guess guess that's when it gets really scary for a lot of people. Uh, Would you like to have a, begin a relationship with Jesus? Would you like to invite Christ into your life? But you actually, in your book, just put out some really great ways of suggesting it and doing and going about it and this is what I love about the way you write. Well, it is difficult, and I'll be honest. I can tell stories and ask curious questions all day, but at some point, you have to invite a response. It's that moment when Jesus turns and says, okay, who do you say I am? Right, exactly. It will be a step of faith. And it's not scary in the sense that, like, oh, I'm going to be rejected. This is terrible. It's more you pivoting the conversation to say, what do you think about this? 
who do you think Jesus is? What do you feel like this is a decision you want to make to invite the Lord into your life to receive the forgiveness of sin? Now, there's all sorts of spiritual tools you can use. We talk about having an app on your phone. We love God tools, and we kind of give all those tools to you. Obviously, I still love the four spiritual laws or knowing Mm -hmm. God personally is the updated version. I love those. They're fantastic gospel presentations. And that's where the little, the training part comes in, where you do at some point need to understand this is what it means to receive the free gift of salvation. But before that, just remember the people in the New Testament who you know, they, they had great, almost like a great ministry, even though their skills weren't there. Think of the blind man who was like, I have no idea. I just know that <laughs> I've, I've been healed. Or I love the woman at the well, because if you remember in John 4, her big sort of evangelistic moment was her just going to her town and saying, look, you guys need to come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Right. She actually wasn't sure. You could tell she doesn't really have good theology. She's got a lot of questions. She probably didn't know what to say, but, you know, Jesus goes and stays in the town and the people are like, you know, first we believed because you said something, but now we know for ourselves. So evangelism is sort of like, look, I'm not sure if I can answer all your questions, but come and meet a man, you know, come and meet Jesus. It's sort of like that woman at the well. I know I can't answer all your questions, but you've got to meet this You've got to meet this Savior. And you can, you know, begin reading the book of John together, which we did with what we thought were going to be hostile neighbors. And Ash just said, you know, we love talking about spiritual things. Would you guys be interested in getting together for pancakes on Saturday and reading the book of John with us? And our most hostile neighbor said, Ashley, I have been waiting for an invitation like this. I have been waiting. And so we gathered, we read the book of John. It's just, it's not um, it's not hard and it's fun and you may have people say I'm not ready to talk about this or and you can just be honest with people. So many times I say, I like I share in the in the book. The first time someone asked me about Jesus, I said, "Look, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to talk to you." <laughs> you know, oh, I just hysterical. said I have no idea. But yeah. let's go through this together. I want to say, what neighbor can say no to Heather and Ash's pancakes? Ash makes amazing pancakes. Yeah, there you I go. Have to say. There you go. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Heather, we have a little bit of time left, and I would love for you to retell your story of the jealousy issue. Yes. Okay. It was a summer day in late July. I was overcome with jealousy and comparison, and I thought I was living the wrong life. I turned to Ephesians two and read the weirdest passage of scripture that changed everything about me. It just says this: God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, before that passage, it says that I'm dead in my transgressions and sins, but God, I'm made alive in Christ. And I'm reading this passage, and I was like, well, I know I'm alive in Christ, but how come I don't feel this weird sense of being seated with him? And that day, I said, okay, I'm seated at the greatest table with the greatest king. Why am I still fighting to belong? at this list of other tables that I'm trying to get an invitation for, the thin table, the wealthy table, the famous table, all these tables. That day, the Holy Spirit just pierced my heart and said, the table you've been waiting for is already here. Now start living like a seated person. And I realized that seated people live in the freedom of knowing, and I call them my three A's. They know they can just adore Jesus and radiate the beauty of the King. 
They have access to all the riches of God's kingdom, and they abide to bear the fruit God's ordained for their life. They adore access and abide, and they don't ever have to compare their lives again. They're already at the table they've been longing for all their life. Mm -hmm. And how has that been sustained in your life since that day? Since that, that's actually a great question, and it's the number one question I get when I tell an unbeliever that story. That's actually their first question. They say, so you felt seated with Jesus. How do you keep that feeling up? Mm-hmm. And I said, honestly, I have to remind myself every new morning. I tell the Lord every morning. I read five psalms a day, and I love connecting with Jesus through Ephesians, and I just say, Lord, I'm seated with you. Thank you. You're here with me. I'm in that secure place. And I just remind myself of the end of Ephesians 2 that said, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So I think I've got good works today. I don't need to compare them to anyone else who has her good works. Whatever God has planned for me, it's part of my sent identity. So now I'm seated and sent. But I do, Bill, I do remind myself almost every morning because Satan wants to steal that truth. Mm-hmm. Didn't, isn't it amazing to you that you probably gone all your life and not really heard a lot of sermons on seated? I hadn't heard one. Nobody had used that word to, to tell me who I was, wow. that I was seated. I think it's a deep truth. It sets you free. Yeah. Well, I know in your book, Heather, and I want all my listeners to hear this, that if Christians sharing their faith is not oftentimes due to not being trained, but it's, it's, due to a lack of knowing who you are in Christ and that Jesus has sent you. So you need to know that you've been sent. So yes. start asking questions, be curious, and you're going to have uh, a lot of new results maybe you've never had before. Yes, and there's some fun things to do while you read the book. We have you make a list of five people in your life that don't know Jesus, and we talk about the seven ways to pray Mm -hmm. and different faith steps you can begin. So it's going to be easy and fun and something that you'll love to do with a small group or your church. Okay, and let's do this again, Heather. It's always uh, good to talk to you, and thank you so much. Yes, have a good evening. Yep. Dr. Heather Holloman has been my guest. Her book is called Sent, Living a Life That Invites Others to Jesus. You can go to Heather Holloman, H-O-L-L-E-R-M-A-N, Heather Holloman. She blogs daily, and you can see all of her books and learn more about her right there. And coming up next, we're going to continue our Salvation Series. I think we've got another episode or two in our Salvation Series. It's been wonderful. I'll be joined, of course, by Dr. Peter Kapsner, who's already in studio, ready to go. Peter? Yeah, I'm nice looking, to here. yeah, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to another uh, episode in this. It's just been quite the series. I've looked at this uh, our guest's his resume, and it's unbelievably long. <laughs> you know, it is. We could spend the entire first segment just reading through this guy. I got the, through about page twelve, and I had to stop reading because yeah. there was too many accomplishments. Well, and and, and he speaks eloquently. Um, he, he he's got the square jaw, Scandinavian look. He's like everything you and I are not, right? On, on just about every level. <laughs> well, we will one day get our fake detective badges, and then we'll feel better about <laughs> we ourselves. We Somehow, we will do that. But yeah, uh, Doctor Eric. Uh, Thanis is going to be our guest, and he is uh, not only a pastor, but he's a professor of theology at Biola. And we've had some uh, wonderful guests from Biola, and we're excited to talk to him. We've got some pretty good questions all loaded up for him already. Yeah, I listened to some of his work that he's done in the past on salvation here, just in prep for the show, and he really does have some pretty compelling themes and some pretty compelling ideas that will both, I think, complement where we've been so far in the series, but also add some new information, new ideas that will really keep filling out this diamond that we've been talking about with all these different facets of salvation. Yeah, I love the diamond. One of the questions I want to ask, uh, Eric, is can someone almost be saved? Oh, 
compelling question. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's going to be be fun to talk to him. He's written a whole number of books, and uh, we're going to kind of focus, obviously, on salvation today, but we're going to ask him a lot of questions, and you can do the same. So if you have a question about salvation, maybe you've been listening to this series, and you've been wanting to ask, you can ask today, 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484 is the number, and you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. If you'd rather do that, after a short break, we're going to be right back with Dr. Eric Thanis. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.